Good morning again. There's a picture I want to throw up uh, on the back. I want to see if you recognize this picture. It's a local picture. It is uh, Maryland's oldest tree. Do you know that shot? It's uh, 355, a little bit south of Grosvenor uh, Metro Station. Anybody catch the subway on the red line? That tree is 300 years old. That tree is older than our country. And as I was thinking about discipleship this morning, and we'll be talking about it for the next four or five weeks, I thought about that tree. That tree being 300 years old. Can you imagine what that tree has seen in 300 years. It's seen the invention of the automobile. It has seen technology. It has seen air flight. It's weathered storms. We've even had a little earthquake here in Washington. It's had to stand against the rain and the winds, it stood in the heat 300 years. The roots of that tree, that's a, a, a linden oak. And a linden oak is a tree that's roots spread outward. They spread wide. And they go fairly deep. And that's kind of like what it is to be a disciple. I suppose that is why the Apostle Paul used roots, trees, as an example of our walk. Think through with me in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, where, where the Apostle says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul uses the metaphor roots in Colossians to create a picture, if you will, in our minds. He's talking about growing up and growing deep in Christ. Now, if you remember in your high school biology class how important roots are for a tree. Roots are critical for the nourishment and the development of a tree. And roots are critical for the stability and the foundation of a tree. So Paul, in essence, is telling us if we want to grow in Christ, we need to be rooted. Secondly, the metaphor of being rooted can be likened to the process of discipleship. Now, note I said process. You know, I believe that um, the church, and when I say the church, I mean church big C, has done a, a disservice to its members. 
We have been, and perhaps it's only here in America, we're very Western in our thinking. And so we like to think of things in steps. We like to think of A, B, C, and then we're done. We like to think of things in terms of programming. Well, I'll take class one, then I'll click take class two, three, four, and then I'm a fully mature disciple. But that's not how this works. Let me give you an example. At the beginning of this year, I started a weight loss program. Okay, now I dare somebody say something, okay? <laughs> I started a weight loss program. And it's a great program, and I won't tell you the name. If you want to know the name, you can, I'll tell you offline. But it's a great program. And it's a 16-week program. And you use an app, and they take you through all of these steps. First you do this, then you do that. You got to weigh in every morning. You got to count your calories. You know, pretty much like all diets do. And it's really, really effective, and it really, really worked, and I was able to reach my goal. But let me ask you, what do you think happened? I told you it was a 16-week program. What do you think happened on week 20 and week 24 and week 32? You better not. You better not. You, you better. All right, Pastor. <laughs> Once the program was over, I'm not. <laughs> it's not about a program. Weight loss is not a program. Good health is a process. It's a lifelong process to good health. Same thing can be said about discipleship. There's a huge difference between a program and a process. A program has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So this morning, my goal is going to be to get you to understand that discipleship, being rooted in Christ, being a disciple, is a process, and how we have to engage that process. Let's take a quick look at Mark 3, 13 through 16. Mark 3, 13 through 16, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he called those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostle, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Now, if we were to just look at this snippet of scripture. There's a lot of passages that talk about discipleship, but I thought that this one was interesting for this morning, and I want to kind of pull it apart a bit and see how that might be instructive for us. So when you look at uh, verse 14, it says that Jesus called those he wanted, and they came to him so they might be with him. 
So that says to me that effective discipleship, because we have to understand that Jesus was the most effective discipler of all times, for discipleship to be effective, it happens in the context of relationship. Honest, healthy relationships, family, are the vehicle that God uses to change lives. Listening to teaching, coming here every Sunday, being with the body, that's one part. Reading your Bible on a daily basis, surely that's another part. But that's only going to get you but so far. Most of us learn best by watching others through imitation. That's how we teach children, that's how we teach adults. That's why every time I get close to a microphone, I encourage you to get in a small group. Being with others, living life in the context of relationship is how you will learn to grow as a disciple. Let's look at our biblical illustration this morning. We're going to talk about Paul as he discipled Timothy. 1 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, who I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul and Timothy did life together. Throughout the New Testament, there are occasions in which writers record the disciples calling Jesus rabbi. We understand that that word means teacher. But what we might miss is the understanding that follows if someone had a rabbi relationship in that day. Not only did they sit in class and it was a didactic relationship, the student literally followed their teacher everywhere they went. In fact, the prayer was always that the dust of your rabbi cover you that you're following so closely in your rabbi's steps that the dust that he would kick up from his sandals would actually cover you. You didn't only follow their teachings, you literally followed them and learned and copied the life and actions that the rabbi lived. So, in the disciples' case, when he called the 12, how did he teach them? Well, they went to weddings with him. They ate dinner with him. They walked through the countryside together. Jesus spent time with his disciples in everyday life, and he used those circumstances as teaching opportunities. He took them along when he healed the sick, when he preached the multitudes, when he ministered to others. So to grow up and to grow deep, we must be rooted in our relationship with Christ and with others who are following him. 
I want you to look at this video, and then we're going to talk about it. This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family, and he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life, ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James, who was influenced by Thomas. Thomas, on Uncommon Joy and Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. The single greatest factor, family, in making disciples is relationships. And it's because of our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with people that others will come to Christ. So to be rooted and grow up 
and grow deep, we must engage in a process that is relational. The second thing that we need to engage in the process is to be intentional. He sent them out. Verse 14 says that he sent them out. This verse showed us that Jesus was intentional in his relationship with the 12, and the 12 were intentional in their relationship with Jesus. To be intentional means to be deliberate or to do something on purpose. You know, a few years ago, the researcher George Barnum and you've heard us talk about uh, that group a few times, uh, found that born-again Christians, people who profess Christ, people who have a faith, were statistically indistinguishable from their non-Christian neighbors in 15 moral behaviors. Does that surprise you? Those Behaviors include lying, gossiping, substance abuse, having physical extramarital relations, statistically undistinguishable. Barner observed that as many as 66% of this group he called them, he, he coined a term and he called them casual Christians. And casual Christians are self-identified Christians who don't necessarily view matters of faith as central to their purpose or success in life. Casuals kind of want a low demand faith, if you will, one that helps them to feel religious, maybe be better people without necessarily having to take a stand on moral issues. Barna calls this faith in moderation. I think Jesus had another term for it. He called it lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. Because if you want to grow up in the faith and you want to be strong, and God knows that we need to be strong in light of the world that we live in today, we cannot afford to be casual. We have to be intentional in our commitment to Christ. And we have to be intentional about the principles that he taught because the yoke of discipleship is an intentional thing. To be rooted and to grow deep, you have to engage in a discipleship process that's relational and intentional because family, that's where the transformation is. There is transformation there is power in being rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, intentionality follows his principles and commands and will transform your life and others. 
As I sit here this morning, I was thinking about transformation. And I'll tell you unashamedly that I'm not the person that I used to be. In fact, if you knew me 10, 15, 20 years ago, you wouldn't even recognize me. There are people in this room who do know me from then and probably are as surprised as I that I sit here. There's nothing special about me other than the fact that I became sick and tired of being sick and tired, other than the fact that I set my mind and my heart and my will on following Christ and what he has for me. It is possible. In fact, if you encounter Christ, truly encounter Christ, and set your heart to living for Christ, his word says that if you seek him, you'll find him. You don't have to be lost. <laughs> you don't have to be lost. He is our guide. He is our God. He is our hope. Researchers say that there are eight key things that if you, uh, that, in, that are in the lives of Jesus Christ followers, things that um, help or aid in the transformational process. And we're gonna go through them rather quickly. And you can write them down. The first thing, as I said, as I talked about a minute ago, it's Bible engagement. If you engage your Bible every day, if you let the word dwell deeply into your hearts and minds and lives, you will change. If you develop a biblical mindset, if you begin to see the world through the lens of scripture, how many people know that there's very little, there's nothing actually in the Bible that is not addressed? The human condition is addressed in the Bible. No, it doesn't talk about computers, it doesn't talk about things like that, but family, People haven't changed. People have not changed. The things that we were doing many, many millennium ago, we're still doing now. The only difference is we hear about it faster because we have internet. You don't need to be shocked when you hear that people are killing each other and that families are torn apart. All of those things are addressed in the Bible we don't tell you to read the Bible as a have to or, or something that you should feel guilty about. It's your instruction manual. The second thing that I would say that aids in transformation is once you read the Bible, you need to obey it. You need to obey God. And the call of Christ says that you are to deny yourself. Is that easy to do? No. Because this flesh wants what it wants. 
I can't wait to get out of this chair and go and get some fried chicken. Because, see, the program is over if y'all had been listening and, you know. It's about denying self. It's about living countercultural. It's about giving yourself away so that you may gain. The third thing is serving God. Serving God and serving others. Not out of duty, not out of guilt, but out of gratitude and out of joy for, the, for what he's done for you. It's about sharing Christ. And I think this is where we begin to get stuck. We may read our Bibles. We may even try to obey and deny ourselves as much as possible. For some of you, serving comes naturally, serving God and serving others. But sharing Christ, telling others about what the Lord has done for you, sharing your testimony, being willing in season and out to talk about the hope that you have and why. Sharing Christ is essential. And then the next thing is that we have to exercise faith. Faith is almost like a muscle. As you begin to walk and exercise your faith, as you take one step in obedience, as you begin to trust, the more you will trust, the more you will extend, the more you will walk, exercising your faith and seeking God first in all things. Seek him first and all other things will be added unto you. You don't have to live a life that is grasping. You don't have to live a life afraid that, oh, well, but, but if I give this away, then I won't have anything for myself. Children of God don't have to worry about that. The Lord knows what you need. He knows what you need before you know what you need. And he'll give it to you before you can say. Seeking him first, having your life in order, living a life of decency and order, putting God first. Not your job, not your spouse, not your kids. Putting God first and trusting him to line up all other things. The next thing I would say is building relationships. We talked about that a minute ago, being in small groups. Not just walking down the hallway and somebody say, hey, how you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. Knowing you just is broke down. And the thing of it is, most of us know you broke down too. I'm sorry. We know you dress well, you look good. But we know everybody has something going on. And we're certainly not surprised to hear it. And maybe one of your pastors has even been through it before, too. And if not one of us, certainly somebody else in this room knows. Family, that's why he puts us together as a family. That's why we go through 
the trials that we go through. Well, it's not all the reasons that we go through trials. Some of it is because we've bought it on ourselves. But the trials in life that we go through, we use that pain, we use that situation so that we can be wise and we can comfort others. It's certainly not consolation for going through something hard, but it certainly keeps you from wasting. And then the last thing that I would say is that we have to live transparently, unashamedly. We can't pray for you, we can't walk with you, we can't serve you, we can't help lead you, unless you're honest. If somebody doesn't say amen, I'm gonna talk for another 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm going to tell you one last story, and then I'm going to let you go. I heard a story of a group of women, and they used to meet for Bible study. And while they were studying the book of Malachi, chapter 3, they came across a passage that says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And they thought to themselves, what does that statement mean? That's... What does that mean? What does that mean to be a refiner and purifier of silver? And how does one apply that sentence to the character and nature of God? So the following week, one of the women that was in the group called a silversmith. And, you know, being, I'm, I'm a city girl, so I don't really know much about silversmiths and, and that type of trade. But the woman called a silversmith and asked if she could make an appointment of, with him so she could watch him as he worked. And as she watched, um, he would hold a piece of silver over the fire and let it heat up. And he explained that ref when you're refining silver, one has to hold it in the middle of the fire where the flames are the hard hottest. And in that way, it burns away all the impurities. And as the woman watched him, she thought about God and how he holds us in hot spots. And she thought again about the verse that he sits as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And so she asked the silversmith if it was true that he had to hold and sit in front of the fire the entire time the, fire, the silver is being refined. And the man said, yes, he cannot leave the silver. He must sit in the fire, beside, I'm sorry, in front of the fire and hold the silver the entire time. He had to keep his eyes on the flame. The reason why the silversmith has to sit and keep his eye on the silver while it is in the middle of the flame is because if it goes one second too long, 
the whole thing is destroyed. So it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of the silversmith must keep his eye on the piece of silver the entire time while it is in the flame and while it is being changed and transformed and purified. So as the woman listened to this explanation, she was silent for a second, and then she asked the question, well, if that's the case, how do you know when the silver is ready to be pulled out of the fire? And the silversmith smiled at her and he looked and he said, oh, that's easy. I, I can see my image in the silver when it's time to be pulled out. Being rooted and built up in Christ is all about God refining you so that he can see his image in you. When all of our words, when all of our reactions, when all of our actions, the life we live reflect the life of Jesus Christ, then we've been rooted and grounded as his. So the question that I would ask you today, a couple of questions that are on the back of your worship folder. What relationships are helping you grow up and grow deeper in Christ? Is there a relationship in your life that's actually hindering it? Who are you intentionally being discipled by? Who are you discipling? And has your life been and is it being transformed as a result of your relationship with Christ? Let's pray. Father, your word says that you will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And it is your gold to burn away all the impurities so that you can see your image in us. Father, I confess to you that that's a painful process. And I don't always want to hold still in the middle of the flames. It would be easier sometimes to walk away. But Father, that is not where life is. That is not where the fullness of life is. Help me help all of us to want you. Not your gifts, just you. And we'll be grateful, but better than that, we'll be changed. And we say this 
in your name, Jesus the Christ. Amen.